Praise God. Well, hello, Grace Point family. Good morning. How are we? Well, this is really the beginning of a year-long discipleship series, and uh, this uh, larger series is going to be broken down into smaller ones along the way. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to talk about knowing God. And since I only have four weeks to cover a topic that I could spend years on, okay, we're going to jump right into it. Uh, J. Oswald Sanders said this, we are at this moment as close to God as we, truly, as we really choose to be. True, there are times when we would like to know a deeper intimacy, but when it comes to the point, he says, we are not prepared to pay the price involved. I want to encourage you as we get started on this journey as a church, we are as close to God as we choose to be. I am as intimate with God as I choose to be. You see, I believe this, that God is always pursuing us, that he, he longs for an intimate relationship with us, but it is often us who are not willing to pay the price, right? We had a great uh, turnout for community groups this week, praise God. Man, it blessed my heart as, as a pastor to see so many of you in community groups gathered around tables here, and I know in homes around the county, engaging with the Word of God and talking about how we uh, live out what we truly believe. But really, I want to say this morning, our relationship with God, the strength of that relationship, what it ultimately comes down to is prioritization, okay? To the degree that you spend time with someone, the more you get to know them, right? My wife and I have been married for 22 years now, but <laughs> praise God. But we, I still know this, we still need to date and we still need to foster that relationship, amen? And I believe this, again, God pursues us and he, he longs to be in relationship with us and so we need to make that time with him. And so as we jump into a discussion on knowing God, I have to ask this question, how passionate are you in your pursuit of God? How diligent are you in spending time with him in his word. You see, through this series, we're going to take time to understand what God is really like. We're going to uh, study the characteristics of God. But today, I really want to start with the very foundation. I want to lay the framework, if you will, for the very existence of God. Because we can't talk about what God is like if we don't believe he exists. Are you with me today? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says this. You know, if you're following along in your notes, I encourage you to do that with a note sheet you got as you came through the door. Hebrews 11:6 6 says this, and it is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that he exists, right? That's step one. First of all, you got to believe that he exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. In our journey together, we're going to talk about the importance of faith, okay? We're going to discuss the character of God, but first things first, in order to know what God is like, you have to believe that he exists. And so today, we're going to look at evidence for the existence of God. And as we look at that evidence, here's what you're going to see. You're actually going to see that this evidence gives us a picture for what God is like. It gives us an understanding of his character. And so here's the first question today. Is God really out there? As we begin talking about knowing God, is there a God to be known? Psalm 14.1 tells us this. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. It's amazing because our society has, has painted this picture of the atheist as the intellectual, right? They're the ones who have the, the many degrees and have, have somehow figured all this out. I don't know if you know the name Christopher Hitchens. He was a, a very well-known, outspoken atheist, and he, would, he passed away recently. But 
sounded brilliant. I mean, he had, a, he had a British accent. To me, a British accent just makes somebody sound smarter, right? But the psalmist says this, it is actually the fool who says there's no God. Now, understand, he's not calling a man a fool for thinking there's no God, but rather for telling himself there is no God, even though deep down inside he knows that there is. You see, unbelievers do not disbelieve scripturally. We understand they know, but they reject. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, if you want to turn there, Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, he says this, but God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who, what, suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them, for ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. And as a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. Understand, Paul is not criticizing non-believers because they don't believe. He says, no, they know, they know, but instead they suppress the truth that they know. Understand today, mankind is not ignorant of the truth that God exists, but rather suppresses, suppresses that truth. He pushes it down. He says, I don't want to acknowledge that fact. If you are suppressing truth today, if you say, man, there's something inside of me that, that says there's got to be more, but you're pushing that down, all right, or, or you know someone who's doing the same, I want to give you four arguments today for the existence of God. Four arguments today for the existence of God. Now, these are not all of the arguments, just a couple to help you understand. Now, to explain uh, this first argument, all I need is some audience participation and some classic health food. How many of you love Twinkies? Come on, you can admit it. You can admit it. Just a couple of uh, golden sponge cakes filled with that all-natural cream, right? Um, let me ask you a question today. I'm going to open this up. I know you guys want one. Come on. Yeah, some of you are like, yeah, let's do this. Open this up. And I'm going to grab one of these out of here. These are hard to find, by the way. Well, let me ask you a question as I hold this Twinkie today. Does this Twinkie exist? Who said no? <laughs> Come on, Aldo. Being a troublemaker over there. Does this Twinkie exist? Not a trick question, okay? If this Twinkie did not exist, in fact, if nothing at all in the world existed, would nothing require an explanation? Of course not, right? And if you did have an explanation of nothingness, there would be no one here to hear it, right? It's kind of like the tree falling in the woods, right? However, the minute that something exists, even this Twinkie, there must be sufficient explanation for its existence. Whenever something exists, there must be an explanation for its existence. Okay, let's look at this Twinkie a little bit closer. Does this Twinkie depend on anything else for its existence? Well, let me read the ingredients for you here. I'm going to find them. This is going to be good. Sugar, water, enriched flour, barley flour, niacin, 
ferrous sulfate. I don't know why we're eating sulfate. Dextro does, does this Twinkie depend on anything else for its existence? Yes, there's a whole string of ingredients. You don't know where they come from, but it's required, right? So this Twinkie is what we would call contingent. Now, non-contingent means something is both capable of creating itself and sustaining itself. So this is contingent, right? Uh, these Twinkies need help to be made. They're made in a factory somewhere, all right? And these Twinkies will not always be in this state. Somebody will eat these, I guarantee, by this afternoon, okay? I'm not saying who, all right? And if we took these Twinkies and we laid them out in the sun for a few weeks, they would begin to decay, right? As do all contingent commodities in this world, including human beings. We're decaying. You don't believe me? Just look at some old photos, okay? You will see that we deteriorate over time. Now, let me summarize. We have Twinkies that exist. Their existence requires an explanation of some kind. These Twinkies are a contingent subject. Now, here's the big question. Who or what is the explanation for these Twinkies? For that matter, who or what is the explanation for every other contingent thing that exists this morning? The rocks and the rivers and, and the trees and the stars and the oceans and the birds and the people around you. Let me help you with the answer to this question. I want you to imagine, I'm going to bring out uh, illustration number two. I want you to imagine this world here. I want you to imagine a, a circle around this globe. Or let me say this, a circle goes around the universe. And everything inside the circle is kind of like the Twinkie. It's contingent. It was brought into existence by some other force. It depends on something else to keep on existing, and it is slowly headed toward non-existence. If we look to identify the reason or the explanation for this Twinkie and for all of the other contingent things in our universe, should we expect to find the explanation inside of the circle? What do you think? Should we? No, no, of course not, right? It, it, that's, it, it should be outside of the circle. And, and using our current set of definitions, whatever is outside of the circle would be non-contingent. In other words, it is uncaused by anything else. It is totally self-reliant. It's powerful. It's eternal. And when you start to use terms like that, non-contingent, uncaused by anything else. My father used to say he is the uncaused cause of all causes, right? self-sufficient, self-reliant, powerful, eternal, all of a sudden those are descriptions used for God, right? Or, or at least the God-like power. And, and so whether or not you believe in the God of the Bible this morning, I think that reasonable people everywhere should hold the position that there is at least a God-like power out there. If we would take a moment to just consider it seriously, you'd have to conclude that a non-contingent force must exist. There must be a force that brought all of this contingent stuff that we see into being, and these Twinkies prove it, all right? Um, who wants some Twinkies? Really? You guys are all health fanatics? All right, here we go. Come on, we got some takers in the front row, all right? It pays to sit in the front row, all right? Now, don't eat those, because that'll be really distracting. Hold on to those, at least to the end of the service. There's 10 of them, so she's going to share, amen? All right, so that's the first uh, argument for the existence of God. The, the universe is contingent, okay, and anything that is contingent must have been caused by something else. Therefore, the universe was caused by something else, and this cause is God. Now, 
this line of reasoning has, has generally been referred to as a cosmological argument, okay? Cosmos, the, the world or creation for the existence of God. And it's a good one. You see, it, it forces people to come to the logical conclusion that there is someone or something outside of the circle of contingent items that, that we see that serves as an explanation for everything inside of the circle. Now, admittedly, this argument only, only goes so far, okay? And it needs to be supported by other evidence for the existence of God. So let's keep going. Argument num- number two is the tele- teleological argument, okay? It is an argument from design. Teleos means end or purpose. Listen to this very powerful quote, very unexpected quote from none other than Charles Darwin himself, the creator of the evolutionary theory, one of the, the leading proponents in his day of a world without a creator, okay? A, a world that mysteriously exploded into being and then evolved over billions of years with no plan, no force behind it, no guiding hand. It just, just came about. I'm going to give you a very powerful quote in just a moment, but before I do that, I want you to look up here. Look up here. Where to look at me? All right. Now, what did you use to look up here? Your eyes. Okay. Now, by human stand, by any standard, I would say this: the human eye is a marvel. You know, it's made up of millions of cells. There are seven million special vision cones that fire information to the brain whenever light comes into your eye. And here's a little trivia: on average, how many shades of color can the normal human eye distinguish between? How many of you would say a hundred? How many of you would say five hundred? How many of you say a thousand? How many of you are too afraid to answer? You don't want to look foolish. Okay. It's a thousand. A thousand. The average human eye, get this, can differentiate between a thousand different shades of color. Our eyes have the most sophisticated auto-focusing capability ever. Think about it. You can be sitting there reading your notes, and you can look up to me, and your eyes focus in a millisecond. Except for some of you, you got to take your readers off, right? No man-made device... It will ever be able to, to match the complexity of the human eye, its sophistication, its effectiveness. It, it's just marvelous, marvelously designed. And one day after studying the human eye, Charles Darwin, in a moment of unusual candor, wrote these words. He said, to suppose that the eye, with all its imitable contrivances for adjusting the focus to different distances, for admitting different amounts of light, and for correction of spherical and chromatic aberration could have been formed by natural selection, he says, seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. This is the evolution guy. He said, to think that all this could come about just just by chance, I'll admit it sounds pretty absurd. Think about the rest of your body. Think about the heart right now. Your heart is not an accidental organ, okay? It has been perfectly designed to pump 2,000 gallons of blood a day, 2,000 gallons of blood. Your lungs are more than just air sacs. They're designed to filter oxygen out of the air and get it into your blood. The body contains 40 billion tiny blood vessels called capillaries, and your entire blood supply washes through your lungs once every minute. The adult human brain contains over 100,000 billion electrical connections, more than all the electrical connections in all the electrical appliances in the world. Your your tongue has between 2,000 and 8,000 taste buds, and without them, you wouldn't be able to taste the Twinkie, right? Your hands, think how amazing they are. You can grip something, 
and feel at the, at the same time to know if it's hot, right? The nose is able to smell. And think about it. The nose is put right above the mouth <laughs> so you can enjoy your food even more. Imagine if you were made differently, though. Imagine if your nose was upside down. You would drown every time it rains. Just think about that. <laughs> I, I think about these things sometimes, right? Listen, the human body is visible evidence of a great designer. Scientist Walter Bradley says this, the mathematical odds of assembling a living organism are so astronomical that nobody believes that random chance accounts for the origin of life. He says, even if you optimize the conditions, it wouldn't work. If you took all the carbon in the universe and put it on the face of the earth and allowed it to chemically react at the most rapid rate possible for a billion years, the odds of creating just one functional protein molecule would be one chance in 10 with 60 zeros after it. I don't know what that number is, but it's a big number, right? And that's for one functional protein molecule. When you consider the billions of molecules that make up human life, I, I think it takes a lot more faith to believe that all of this just happened by chance. Biochemist Michael Beale says, the probability of linking together just 100 amino acids to create one protein molecule by chance would be the same as a blindfolded man finding one marked grain of sand somewhere in the Sahara Desert. And he says, and not just doing it once, but doing it three times. The distinguished astronomer Sir Frederick Hoyle said the chance occurrence of just one protein cell is about as likely as a tornado whirling through a junkyard and accidentally assembling a fully functional Boeing 747. He said, those are the chances, right? And check this out. If all of the, the DNA in one of your cells, in one of your cells were uncoiled and, and connected and stretched out, it would be about seven feet long. Now, it would be so thin that you wouldn't be able to see the details even under an electron microscope. But it would be seven feet long, one thing of DNA from one cell. If all of this very densely coded information from one cell of one person were written in books, it would fill a library of 4,000 books. If all of the DNA in your body were placed into book form, that information would fill the Grand Canyon almost 30 times. Listen, the psalmist was right when he said this, we are fearfully and, and we're wonderfully made. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. The human body speaks to the design of God and, and, and so does creation. Hey, do you want to know if God exists? Just go outside and look up. Scripture says this, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or a word. Their voice is silent in the skies, and yet their message has gone out to all the earth and their words to all the world. Do you want to know if God exists? Just look up. Earth is this huge hunk of rock, right? 24 thousand miles around and yet one million earths would fit into our closest star which is the sun one million earths i say the sun's pretty big right it's 93 million miles away and yet you can get a sunburn right if it were any further away we'd all freeze to death if it were any closer we would all die from the heat but as big as the sun is it is nothing compared to the biggest star size wise 
the diameter of UY Scuti is 2.64 billion kilometers. In other words, it is 1,900 times larger in diameter than the sun. Five billion suns can fit in UY Scuti. Our solar system is part of a galaxy called Milky Way. Thank you. Oh, no answers from this side? What's going on? The Milky Way, okay? And, and it's 100,000 light years in diameter. It has between 100 and 400 billion stars and at least that many planets. And today, the observable universe is estimated, this keeps going up, it's estimated to contain more than 2 trillion galaxies. All of these planets and stars and galaxies are constantly moving through space. They're designed with beauty and, and with symmetry. Even our own Earth, you know, it travels 66,000 miles an hour, okay? You and I, in the next 24 hours, will travel one and a half billion miles through space. I guess we have a right to feel a little tired tonight, right? We're, we're moving, right? And, and understand this, space is not just randomness. There is awesome design to the, the universe around us. Albert Einstein said this, everyone who is seriously interested in the pursuit of science becomes convinced that a spirit is manifest in the laws of the universe. And he says this, a spirit vastly superior to man and one in the face of which our modest powers must feel humble. The psalmist says, look up to the sky, right? Isaiah says, look up to the sky. Who created all of the stars? He says, who brings them out like an army? One after another, he's calling each one by name because of his great power an incomparable strength, not a single one of those stars is missing. And listen, if God knows the names of hundreds of billions of stars, I want to tell you, he hasn't forgotten your name. He hasn't forgotten your name. What, what matters to you today matters to him. What concerns you today concerns him. What troubles you troubles him. The creator of the universe is not too big and, and not too removed and too powerful to know your name and to care for you and to guide your life. John Piper said this. I love this quote. He says, sometimes people stumble over the vastness in relation to the apparent insignificance of man. It, it does seem to make us very small. But the meaning of this magnitude is not mainly about us. It's about God. The reason for, quote-unquote, wasting so much space on a universe to house a speck of humanity is to make a point about our maker and not us. The heavens declare the glory of God. The Whirlpool Galaxy, have you heard of that galaxy? It's 31 million light years away. And since its discovery in 1773, it has been one of the most popular one of the most photographed galaxies. Not too long ago, the Hubble uh, took a, a picture of its core. It's a core that's made up of a trillion stars, and the image in the core is 1,100 light years. That's 7 trillion miles in size. Do you want to know what that, what that core is shaped like? I think we have a picture of it here. Go ahead. What does that look like to you? 7 trillion miles inside looks awful lot like a cross to me. <laughs> I think that thinking people everywhere need to confess the obvious, that wherever and whenever something shows all the signs of intelligent design, whether it be the human eye 
or the billions and trillions of galaxies out there, wherever and whenever we witness the wonder of intelligent design, I think we should all agree there must be an intelligent designer behind the intelligent design. What do you think? Honestly, it's never seemed to be a leap of faith to me. It just makes sense. And when I pick up a model of a globe or a, or a Twinkie, I don't just assume this came into being just randomly, right? I understand, hey, somebody made that. And I understand this today. The greater the design, the greater the designer. Mankind can make a model of the earth. It can make a, a model of the human eye. But they can't come anywhere close to making the real thing. Listen, the more complex the design, the greater the intelligence required to produce it. And the world, our universe, is more complex than we could ever imagine. So let's summarize this argument. Number one, design implies a designer. There is a great design in the universe. Therefore, there must be a great designer. Uh, again, this, this kind of thinking has historically been referred to as the teleological argument for the existence of God. It, it simply points to the order, the design, and the intricacies of our world and asks this question, who or what is most likely responsible for a universe as awesome as ours? Is it chance or is it a supreme creator, and designer, which makes the most sense. Philosopher William Paley once wrote this. He said, there simply cannot be design without a designer. There simply cannot be contrivance without a contriver. There simply cannot be order without deliberate choice. To me, it would take a huge leap of faith for me to attribute the wonders of our universe to the roll of a dice, to just some randomness that happened. And here's the magic wand, billions of years. Right? Here's, here's what I know. Over billions of years, things don't get better. All right? If you just leave it alone, everything tends towards chaos. I can't muster enough, enough faith to believe that we're here just by chance. It takes a lot less faith for me to believe that there is a powerful designer God who created this stuff and is responsible for it. Now, the third argument for the existence of God is the argument for, for moral law. Now, can I see those Twinkies again for just a minute? You guys don't need these. I'm just going to take these back. All right, what are you guys thinking right now if I take the Twinkies back? You're thinking it's wrong. Okay, how do you know that it's wrong? What's the basis or the grounds for you saying me taking the Twinkies away is wrong? It, it, I went back on my word, but, but how can we say that's wrong? It, there's, there's some moral system within each one of us, right, that, that says what's right and what's wrong, but where did that come from? Like, how do you get that inside of us? i got to give these back. See, I feel bad. It's, it's that moral law. I'm going to, here you go. There are 10 of these, so she is going to share them, all right? Everybody around you, all right? But where do we get this sense of, of right and wrong? You see, our world right now is crying out for justice, right? But where do we get the sense of what is right and what is just? How do we know certain things are just evil, Right? And other things are just good and wonderful. Dr. Bill Craig says this, if there is no God, then morality is just a matter of personal taste. It's like Brussels sprouts. Some of you say, man, those things taste good. Others of you are like, are you crazy, right? 
Listen, if there's no God, then to say that, that killing or torturing innocent children is wrong, that's just a matter of personal taste. Well, I don't like it, but, but you might, right? And, and we know, though, that it's not right. Like, we know that if you crash a plane into a tower full of thousands of innocent people, that's just evil, right? And at the same time, we know the most courageous thing you could do is to run into that burning tower. But how do we know the difference? It seems as if there is a moral code that's built into the fabric of human beings. Now, understand, animals don't have this. Understand, lions don't feel bad for killing that gazelle, right? They just feel full, right? (laughs) And yet mankind has this innate sense of this is right and this is wrong. And anthropologists have been studying this thing for centuries. and, And they've come to discover there is this amazing consistency throughout the human race with regard to ethical values and a sense of right and wrong. In almost every tribe and culture, no matter where it's located, loyalty is valued over betrayal. Kindness is valued over meanness, right? Fidelity over infidelity. Truth-telling over deceitfulness. Love over hate. The writer C.S. Lewis observed this phenomenon, and he attributes it to the fact that human beings are created in the image of God and therefore have at their core a sense of moral rightness. Now, obviously, because of sin, we don't always live up to that moral code, but it's there, right? And, and Lewis argues this, that if human beings simply evolved from primordial slime, right, it would be highly unlikely that each of them would manifest something as noble and as well-developed as a moral code. C.S. Lewis says this, this points to a connection with a supreme moral being who is responsible for stamping that moral code on the life of all people. C.S. Lewis talks about this reasoning in his book, Mere Christianity. If you haven't read it, powerful book, Mere Christianity. There must be a God, is basically what he says, because who or what else would explain this moral code? What set of molecules, right, would all of a sudden produce a moral sense of right and wrong in the lives of people around the world? If you're talking to someone who doesn't believe that God exists, you need to ask them this question. You need to ask them, say, if human beings came from apes, which evolved from this slimy pond that somehow came from gases billions of years ago, how is it that human beings everywhere operate with a sense of right and wrong? Ask them that question. Just wait. Don't let them off the hook, right? Just wait for an answer, right? What other than the work of a supreme moral being could account for that? William Craig, in his chapter in the book, Why I Am a Christian, he writes this, If God does not exist, do objective moral values? After all, if there is no God, then what's so special about human beings? They're just accidental byproducts of nature. They have evolved relatively recently on the infinitesimal speck of dust lost somewhere in a hostile, mindless universe that are doomed to perish individually and collectively in a relatively short amount of time. (laughs) But here's the reality. Objective values do exist, and deep down we all know it. Some things are really wrong, and at the same time, some things are just really, really good. But if moral values cannot exist without God and moral values do exist, then it follows logically that God exists. The argument goes like this. If God does not exist, objective morals do not exist. Two, objective moral values do exist, therefore God exists. Now, here's the amazing thing about these arguments for the existence of God. Each of them actually tell us something about the character of God. What do creation 
and design and moral law tell us about God? They tell us this, that God is powerful. (laughs) They tell us that he has always existed, that he is intelligent, that he is unique, that he is sovereign in control over all of creation, that he's moral and that he's good. Now there's one final piece of evidence for the existence of God that I want to look at before we close. And it's a piece of evidence that I think more and more people are open to hearing about today than ever before. And the the truth is this, we can't see God, right? In in general, we can't see God, but we can't see the wind either. The same time I was looking out my window this week and that wind was blowing, right? And you saw the effects of the wind. You can feel the wind. In the same way, even though we cannot see God, we can see the effects of God in the world around us. We can see the very visible changes that he makes in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Listen, many people in the world, in in your world, in your workplace, in your school, are just one story away from accepting Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And and so I want to encourage you, church, we need to tell our stories. We need to talk about what Jesus has done for us. We need to talk about the changes that he's made in our lives. We need to talk about the hope that we have, the the purpose that we have, the meaning, the joy, and, and the strength that fills our lives. We need to tell them of the things we've been able to overcome and the bondages that have been broken and the storms that the Lord has helped us to weather. Amen? We need to tell them of the sins that he's taken away that our guilt has been removed. We need to speak of that freedom. Understand this, changed lives are a powerful evidence of the existence of God. And so this is our jumping off point today for this month. And as we talk in the coming weeks about knowing God through his word and knowing God through relationship, I want you to take these arguments to heart. I want you to take the argument of creation and design and morality and think on them a little bit more. And and perhaps the most powerful argument of a changed life. And I want you to share it with someone. Could you do that this week? Hey, here's what I learned in church this Sunday. What do you think about this? And begin to ask some questions of those around us who are already asking questions. And as you think on these things, And what they tell us about God, understand we can live into the character of who God is. These arguments for the existence of God, they tell me some amazing things about who God is. They tell me that God is powerful. They tell me that he has always existed, that he's intelligent, that he's unique, that he's sovereign over creation, and that he's moral, and that he's good. And ultimately, the story of creation tells me that he loves me. We are, at this moment, as close to God as we really choose to be. And I want to say it's, it's worth the price to know a deeper intimacy with the God of all creation. Would you stand with me as we close in worship today?